the American Dennis Tito gets ready to make space history. Lift off, and the first space tourist heads for the stars. Dennis Tito, a billionaire businessman from California, became the first paying customer to go to outer space in 2001. And he paid 20 million US dollars for an eight-day holiday aboard the International Space Station. This was the dawn of the era of commercial spaceflight. And since then, there has been a proliferation of companies looking to capitalise on space. But it's not just businesses that are entering the new space race. Recent years have also seen many more countries get involved. From Algeria to Vietnam, there are 72 countries in the world with some sort of space program. In this third episode of To the Moon and Beyond, the podcast series from The Conversation, we are exploring the new space race. We'll be finding out who some of the key players are, what they're competing for, and what winning will look like. I'm Miriam Frankel, science editor at The Conversation UK. And I'm Martin Archer, a space plasma physicist at Queen Mary University of London. And you're listening to To the Moon and Beyond. Tranquility Base here. The Eagle has landed. I think it's uh, an experience that's not only physically different, but allows you to have a bigger picture of where we are in our universe. And no other country has undertaken a lunar landing program Basically because it's still hard, it's still very expensive, and at least is an argument of whether it's worth doing or not. My wish is that this should be an international endeavor rather than a necessary competition. Spreading across the solar system is the same thing to do. It's both a smart thing in terms of making us more resilient as a species, but I also think this is a way of opening up the potential of humanity. We have a liftoff. Liftoff on Apollo 11. Space exploration has long been driven by competition. As we heard in the first episode of this series, the success of NASA's Apollo missions to the moon were driven by the Cold War competition between the US and the Soviet Union. After the US had won this space race, they soon stopped sending manned missions to the moon because of the cost and the risks involved. So we always think about space as having started as a race between the United States and the, at then that time the Soviet Union, and it was. There was a geopolitical conflict through which uh, each side tried to demonstrate its dominance through some means other than warfare. And that means was the ability to organize, to learn, uh, and eventually to try to put human beings on the moon. That's John Horak. He holds the Neil Armstrong Chair in Aerospace Policy at Ohio State University. Speaking to my colleague Jonathan Gang in the U.S., he describes today's space race as more of an explosion than a race. We have a different dimension today. It's, it's often useful to try to compare. Yes, there are still state actors. There are still significant national prestige and pride uh, factors associated with spaceflight. But there are many, many things going on in space that have absolutely nothing to do with national prestige. They're about economics. They're about philanthropic activities. They're about testing new business models. So it's less of a race and more of an explosion in my view, although there are certainly uh, pieces of this explosion that are like a race. One of these pieces has been the emergence of China as a space power. China's the third nation after Russia and the US that can send humans into space and bring them back safely. 
And one of the most exciting developments in space exploration which took place this year was China's successful Chang'e 4 mission. In January, Chang'e 4 made a soft landing on the mysterious far side of the moon, the first time this has been done. It's only three days into the new year and China is already making history. China's Xinhua News Agency has reported that the country's Chang'e 4 lunar probe has just landed on the far side of the moon. Yang Gao, a space scientist at the University of Surrey in the UK, told us why this was such a significant achievement. It is very challenging to land a spacecraft on the far side of the moon, mainly due to the communication challenges. The reason we are is calling far side is because it's a surface or area of the moon that is never visible to the Earth. So meaning you do rely on communication relays between any entity on that side of the moon and the Earth in order to secure safety and success for the landing. It also means it's going to be quite costly. As well as the technical skill involved in successfully landing on the far side of the moon, China's Chang'e 4 mission included a rover to collect samples from this largely unknown side of the lunar surface. Chang'e 4 landed in a massive crater on the south pole of the moon called the Aiken Basin. It's one of the largest known impact craters in the solar system created by an ancient collision on the moon. And because it's so deep, scientists believe that the moon's crust is relatively thin there, giving them an unprecedented access to study most of the moon's properties, including which minerals it holds. It also carries a very interesting capsule which is a tin that contains the silkworm seeds that allows some investigation and study of how organisms would develop in a low-gravity lunar environment. So that is very interesting and exciting experiment that has never done before on the moon. China hopes to eventually build a lunar outpost, sending crewed missions to study the moon more closely. What resources are there on the moon will be critical to its success. Particularly near the South Atkin Basin area, the South Pole region on the moon. For example, there are a lot of evidence. There are hydrogen uh, abundance there. There are what we call water ice existing beneath the lunar surface in some of the craters uh, that we know uh, are permanent shadowed regions. Uh, in the polar region. These are really very exciting for us because those resources can potentially provide in the future the life support for uh, human habitation or long-term existence on the moon instead of us transporting those resources from Earth. Yeah, and it was actually India's Chandrayaan mission that discovered water ice on the moon's surface. The water is important because we can pull water apart into oxygen and hydrogen. Yes, H2O. Yes. And the oxygen we need, obviously, to breathe. And so that can come in handy for making breathable air for astronauts. And the hydrogen and oxygen can also be recombined and used as as fuel. I think that's something we might touch on in a future episode of To the Moon and Beyond. We most certainly will. Now, China's success has in many ways put rocket boosters under the US government's space plans, citing the threat of China and Russia. Vice President Mike Pence says that there is a renewed space race. Now, make no mistake about it. We're in a space race today. 
just as we were in the 1960s, and the stakes are even higher. Last December, China became the first nation to land on the far side of the moon and revealed their ambition to seize the lunar strategic high ground and become the world's preeminent spacefaring nation. The Trump administration has talked a lot about increasing NASA's budget in order to send a manned mission to the moon in the next five years. Though Donald Trump, at the same time, has also been keen to stress the fact that the U.S. has already won the race over the moon and is now looking to go to Mars and beyond. The directive I'm signing today will refocus America's space program on human exploration and discovery. It marks an important step in returning American astronauts to the moon for the first time since 1972 for long-term exploration and use. This time, we will not only plant our flag and leave our footprint, we will establish a foundation for an eventual mission to Mars and perhaps someday to many worlds beyond. But despite the inevitable competition between countries when it comes to space, John Horrock hopes that the new space race will be very different to the previous one, marked more by collaboration than competition. It is true that the Soviet Union won the race to get an artificial satellite in orbit called Sputnik. They won the race to put a human being in space, and that was Yuri Gagarin. They won the race to do a spacewalk. The United States won the race to put human beings on the moon. The prize of the current space race, at the end of the day, in my view, is a better quality of life for people on Earth. And you get that by engaging. You get that by participating. You get that by asking hard questions. You get that by challenging each other's assumptions about the way the universe works or the way the Earth's weather system works or how do we best go about understanding this natural phenomenon. Horrock points to the ways that space now plays a crucial role in our day-to-day lives. Space is now something that actually touches every single human being's life in a way beyond I saw the moon landing on television. But space is a direct practical benefit for every human being on Earth, whether you are using uh, space-based data because you're a a cash crop farmer somewhere uh, in an emerging country, or if you're trying to find your way to the market and you're using GPS to navigate the streets. And he says space will play an invaluable role in helping humans solve some of the major challenges facing the world. I think there are any number of challenges that are global, that don't know political or artificial human-drawn boundaries, that have at least partial solutions tied to space exploration. When I look at the United Nations sustainability goals, um, every single one of them has some dimension that space can add value to. There's no uh, sort of wave your magic wand and space solves every problem, but it's an incredibly important tool Uh, in solving almost any challenge around water quality, around a healthy environment, around sustainability, around agriculture, being able to feed people. How do we educate people? And then back to the very important part of, of sort of hope and what it means to be a human being. We put Hubble Space Telescope pictures on our refrigerator because they speak to us in a language other than science. It's an inspirational thing to look out into the cosmos and say, wow, we're a part of that. It's beauty. And we have the ability to understand how that works in some small way. It's a really privileged position to be in the universe, to be a human being and understand how these things work. And we use spaceflight to do that. 
as well as new countries getting involved in space, the explosion of space activity that has taken place in recent years has also come from a number of commercial players entering the fray. At the start of this episode, we heard how Dennis Tito became the first person to pay to go to space back in 2001. But the space tourism industry has had a number of false starts. Only seven people have actually gone to space as tourists, and the last journey was back in 2009. That could soon change, though. NASA announced this year that it was opening the International Space Station to tourists and other business ventures. There are also a number of companies whose mission is to advance the frontier of space travel. Want to travel in space? Soon it will be possible to buy time on the International Space Station. NASA announced plans on Friday to host two commercial missions a year, starting as soon as 2020 for those who can afford it. So Martin, we've talked before about whether we would actually like to go to the moon and the risks involved. But how about a trip to the International Space Station? Well, the, the risks to the International Space Station are, are way less yeah. most of the time. And actually, if you factor in the, the International Space Station's shielding and the sort of advanced warnings and things you get from potential space radiation and all the things like that, it, it's way, way safer. And also, it's not as far a journey and it's quite easy to get back. So, yeah, I'd totally be up for, for a trip if, if anybody wants to pay for me to so do you, that. So you wouldn't pay for it yourself? I mean, what would be your... Oh, yes, yes, I've got to spare like 20 million No, but around. let's just say, you know, we could get, get the price down what would be you know the most you would pay to go to space a couple of thousands i don't know that's quite a lot still yeah i don't know it's hard to say but i think for a once in a lifetime journey that would i mean that that's kind of like what some concord trips would be you know if you think back mm, into the true. 80s some people were paying that mm. and i think this is way better than going on a concord i mean so, it, yeah. it, it definitely is the whole thing i mean what would drive you i mean a lot of people would say that it would be kind of just a vanity thing I mean, what would I you tell them? No, I mean, because I don't have an Instagram, so I wouldn't be, like, <laughs> doing a story and taking selfies. But I think it would be for the experience. It's not really for going and doing science, if somebody wants to ask me that. You know, there's a limited number of experiments you can feasibly do with the sort of space constraints and the cost of trying to get stuff up in, into the International Space Station. But generally for that sort of awe-inspiring look back on our planet, seeing the aurora, especially as they're near the North Poles, that looks utterly beautiful. I'd love to see that. And the experience of weightlessness and, and everything like that, I think, would completely change my perspective. I mean, that's what we yeah. hear from, from astronauts. We I would love to have episode. that. Yeah. I'd love to have that thing and be able to talk about that. That would be fantastic. What about you? Yeah, I'd love to go. And I actually think it might be a good thing for people, people who, who describe it as a vanity project. I mean, what we've heard from everyone who's gone to space is that it actually makes you feel more responsible and kind of care more about our planet and stuff like that. And seeing it in a bigger perspective actually but sounds like a good thing. Given the price tags and things like that at the moment, it kind of is a bit of a vanity thing. And, and yeah. is it something that we really should be investing in? So much, perhaps not right at this moment, given more pressing issues? Well, whatever we think about it, space tourism is certainly a burgeoning industry. My name is Louis Brennan. I'm a professor based in the Trinity Business School at Trinity College, Dublin, Ireland. And I have been looking at the area of space and in particular the business of space for quite a number of years now. Brennan compares the space travel industry to the development of commercial aviation. Airlines, he points out, were originally state-run and state-subsidized. And much of aviation originally related to defense and military considerations. 
if you imagine civil aviation and the way civil aviation evolved from being one which very few people partook in to one in which it became an activity engaged in by, by the masses. If space were to evolve in a similar way, space travel, then one could envisage these companies becoming quite profitable. And the billionaires who are funding some of the biggest private space enterprises are all men with big visions. The big three are Elon Musk's SpaceX, Amazon founder Jeff Bezos's Blue Origin, and Richard Branson's Virgin Galactic. The fact that these high net worth um, individuals like Musk and, and Bezos and, and Branson had, had the resources to pursue their interest. But it also goes beyond that. It's also the fact that they had visions. They had a vision of where they wanted to go, what they wanted to do. And in a sense, in pursuing those visions, they're simply emulating what has been, you know, a human trait throughout the ages, which is that pioneering spirit, that voyaging spirit, that sense of, you know, pursuing the last frontier or the next frontier. That's part of it as well. But when it comes to profitability, the likes of SpaceX, Blue Origin and Virgin Galactic are playing the long game. In all cases, they've put a lot of their own money into these endeavours. Jeff Bezos is spending a billion dollars of his own money on Blue Origin every year. SpaceX is generating revenues from its, its launches, that's for sure. Whether any of these companies is actually breaking even at the moment, it seems unlikely. Richard Branson's Virgin Galactic is selling suborbital space flights at $250,000 a ticket. Uh, what, what exactly is suborbital? It means you're basically not in orbit. You're not going fast enough to actually be in orbit around the Earth. So technically, you're sort of not quite in space. Mm. You kind of are, but you're kind of not. So actually, the way that space is defined, the edge of space, is the point beyond which a plane doesn't work. Right, because you couldn't go fast enough to actually get lift, so you'd actually have to be in orbit. Right. So Virgin Galactic, they're not actually making it to orbit because they're actually space planes, what he's got. So essentially, they're sort of touching the edge of space, but then falling back into the atmosphere again and and flying. So it's kind of not Mm. really being in space. And that's why passengers are only going to get to experience a few minutes of sort of zero G, zero gravity. And they'll see the Earth's curvature still at that height, though. Yeah, it's, it's still a bit disappointing for 250000 Yeah, you'd kind of hope you'd get more for your money. But uh, it's still in the process of conducting its test flights right now. Yeah. Though, it's already got a backlog of 700 advanced ticket holders. Luckily, though, tourism isn't the only way for private space businesses to make money. SpaceX is already being used by NASA to transport cargo to the International Space Station. And I would guess at the current rate of progress that we're very likely to see SpaceX transporting crew from planet Earth to the International Space Station, certainly within the next 12 to 18 months. I mean, they've already got the spacecraft uh, ready. They've already docked an unmanned version of the spacecraft with the International Space Station. Since the retirement of the U.S. space shuttle in 2011, NASA has been reliant on Russia's Soyuz rockets to take its crews to the International Space Station at a cost of about $80 million per seat. But, as Louis Brennan says, it could soon be switching to SpaceX, which has a $2.6 billion contract with NASA to develop its Crew Dragon spacecraft, which will transport astronauts to the ISS. 
For John Horrock, this increasing reliance of the US space program on commercial actors is a good thing, but it's also something to be cautious of. Many, many solutions are provided more efficiently at higher quality and lower cost when they're provided by the private sector. I'm thinking about buying a, an airline ticket, right? If I want to fly from New York City to Los Angeles, I go on the website. Maybe it's Delta. Maybe it's American. Maybe it's United. I punch in my credit card. It gives me a bunch of lists. I can compare and shop. Bang, bang. Doo, 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 doo. The transaction is highly trusted, frictionless, easy, and I get my seat. Now, if I want to go to Kandahar, <laughs> that's a little different. Uh, I can't really do that. But the government may have a very strong need to send me to Kandahar. And that's why I have Military Airlift Command. And both Delta Airlines or United Airlines and Military Airlift Command operate in the same airspace. They, in fact, may use very similar airplanes, same runways, air traffic control systems, but they're different because the market doesn't fulfill every need. We don't have a commercial Navy. We don't have a commercial Air Force. I don't know that we should have a fully commercial government space program. Um, but that's not to say we don't have commercial space and government space in the mold that I talked about regarding buying an airline ticket. just depends on what you're trying to do, then you use the proper tool. Certainly, the business concern for the bottom line has resulted in a huge reduction in costs of space travel in recent years. To be more economically viable, space companies like SpaceX and Blue Origin have invested heavily in developing reusable rockets. A major part of the expense uh, of space is actually lifting off planet Earth and getting into space. It's that process of, you know, escaping Earth's gravity and getting into space. That's a real expensive part of that whole space journey. And what the likes of Musk with SpaceX and Bezos with Blue Origin have done is they've looked at the possibility of reusing the rockets that are used to take spacecraft into orbit, into space. And they've been successful in doing that, in bringing back to Earth first the stage one of the rockets and then the subsequent stages as well, and refurbishing them and putting them very quickly back into use again. And that process of reusability is being further fine-tuned even as we speak and um, is a major contributor in terms of reducing the cost of getting into space. While spacecraft and rockets get all the limelight in coverage of the new space race, Brennan says this can lead to a whole host of commercial opportunities being developed to support the new private space activity, a growing value chain, as it were. So there's the upstream part of the value chain, which is that part that actually projects into space, projects the spacecraft, projects the satellites into space and so on. At the downstream end, you have many companies then uh, that are involved in areas like navigation, like earth observation, like communication and so forth, um, that are utilizing data that is being generated from satellites in space. And of course, this is where another major revolution is taking place in space, which is that satellites are becoming much smaller and also much less expensive. This is one way that SpaceX generates revenue. Its constellation of satellites provide communications and internet connections around the world. 
And just a few days before sitting down to record this, they launched a mission for the US government deploying 24 satellites and various experiments. Google, you wouldn't normally think about it, but they're getting in on the act. It's got a number of space initiatives and it's even sponsored a competition called Google Lunar X Prize, which had the tagline, welcome to a new space race. It offered millions of dollars in prize money to private companies that could land a robotic spacecraft on the moon by the end of March 2018. We're doing something that's never been done before. We're landing a private spacecraft on the surface of the moon. These are incredibly brilliant people who are actually going to change society. The moon will unlock the solar system because it's a gas station in the sky. We're heading into a new era of commercial space. Because of what you have done, Brennan thinks that Google's interest in space stems from a desire not to be left behind. Google is essentially a data company. I mean, data is its raw material. And the potential for data from space is huge. You know, whether you're thinking in terms of observation data, whether you're thinking in terms of weather data, whether you're thinking in terms of communications data or whatever. And, you know, if you were to talk to futurists, they would say, looking into the future, space is going to be a growing sector into the future. So they're always trying to keep a foot in every sector and, and look for opportunities in terms of applications for their capabilities, their algorithms, their technologies. While nobody ended up winning the Google Lunar X Prize, it was an Israeli company called Space IL that came the closest. They launched a lunar lander called Bereshit in February this year. Last night, the Bereshit moon probe activated its engines for a full 60 seconds, taking it to a new orbit. Bereshit is about 252,000 miles away from Earth, hurtling through the cosmos at six miles every second. Bereshit was the first privately funded attempt to land on the moon, and though the spacecraft crashed, Israel became the seventh country to make lunar orbit and the fourth country to attempt a soft landing on the moon. Space scientist Yang Gao says that the growth of privately financed projects like the Bereshit mission is really exciting. As a space scientist and technologist, I feel this is welcome by the community in general, because that means there will be potentially more launch opportunities, more mission opportunities, either robotic missions or human missions, to go to the moon and certainly would offer opportunities for us to fly the latest scientific technologies to the moon to help us reveal some of the answers for the scientific questions we have in mind or to test technologies to allow advancement of those technologies in a more speedy manner. For John Horrock, the Bereshit attempt to land on the moon encapsulates the growing opportunities there are for businesses and countries, now that a lot of core space infrastructure is in place. Now, at the end of the day, that lander did not make a soft landing on the moon. But it's very interesting because Israel's not a big country. Science and technology is a strong part of their economy. They were able to figure out how to put together this lander, fund it outside of the government space agency, catch a ride with uh, Elon Musk and SpaceX, and darn near were successful in landing it on the moon. 
this is the kind of thing that can be done nowadays because the infrastructure to get to space, the infrastructure to build space hardware, uh, computer technology, design technology, the smartness of people, cleverness of people is opening up. And Israel is just going to be just one of many, many examples in that vein. Space can be done by anyone anywhere in the world and at lower costs than ever before. And so you're going to see these kinds of organizations and companies emerge. So for all the talk of a new space race, today's race does not have to be a zero-sum game where some groups win and others necessarily lose. Horak hopes that instead of nations competing against one another, the new space race will be more of a competition of ideas that pushes the boundaries of human discovery and ingenuity. Competition is as essential as collaboration in driving the future of space activities. And what we want it to be is a competition of ideas, a competition of ways of thinking, of, of questions to ask. Can we compete to find the best question to go answer. That's the competition that I want us to see, not a competition of who can you know, bench press the most or who can run the fastest. It's a competition to take all of us as far as we can, as fast as we can, as sustainably as we can. That might sound quite idealistic, especially at a time when the relations between the US and China are increasingly competitive and frosty. But Horek points to the scientists who, for their part, are focused on cooperation and have been very successful in working across political boundaries. It's when you get out of the scientific realm and into the more engineering realm or national security realm that the challenges arise. But there are collaborative things going on. And it's going to be a push and a pull a little bit that, you know, the scientists will continue to push collaboration and push to have things more integrated and push uh, a reduction of barriers and an openness and a building of trust. And there will be other forces in the world that tend to pull at those threads and try to take the sweater apart as opposed to knit it together. And this is why it's important for scientists not to give up hope on this, even in the height of the Cold War when the United States and Russia then the Soviet Union were, what I would say, you know, at each other's throats. We were able to work together and fly a space mission called Apollo-Soyuz in 1975, where three Apollo astronauts docked up with two Soviet cosmonauts in orbit. And it laid the groundwork for the collaboration we see in space today, which despite very serious challenges on the ground, has remained sacrosanct. Why can't people just be a bit more like scientists? I mean, scientists are great in terms of cooperation and, and creation and knowledge and advancing the frontiers. I mean, we're not perfect. Now, obviously, scientists like me, we don't rule the world. It's big business and big governments that have their way. And many of those emerging opportunities that Louis Brennan was speaking about include plans to mine the moon for resources. And that's a thorny issue about laying claim to the moon. So the Moon Agreement is controversial because it contains certain concepts that are uh, not accepted by all of the spacefaring nations because of those 18 states that have ratified it, actually none of them are uh, what we call space power. So neither the United States, nor Russia, nor China, nor India, nor France have uh, ratified the Moon Agreement. And we'll be exploring the risks and benefits of going back to the Moon, as well as those legal and ethical considerations of who owns the moon's resources in our next episode. 
To make sure you don't miss this, subscribe to To The Moon and Beyond wherever you get your podcasts. You can also find all the episodes on theconversation.com where you'll find loads more articles from academics around the world marking the 50th anniversary of the NASA moon landings. And if you like this podcast, please give us a review on Spotify or iTunes. It really does help. And if you have any questions about the series, you can get in touch via email on podcast at theconversation.com or you can reach me on Twitter. I'm at Miriam Frankel. And I'm on Twitter as at Martin Archer as well. A big thanks to all the academics who spoke to us for this episode and to the journalism department at City University of London for letting us use their studios. Thanks to our conversation colleagues, Jonathan Gang, Martin LaMonica and Zoe Jass. To the Moon and Beyond is produced by Gemma Ware and Annabel Bly. Sound editing by Siva Fengaraja. I'm Martin Archer. And I'm Miriam Frankel. And you've been listening to To the Moon and Beyond. To the Moon and Beyond.